So we are in this series we're calling Unveiling Glory, uh, continuing this theme we've been talking about, about transformation and glory the last several weeks. And so um, while we're going to stay kind of centered in that text in 2 Corinthians 3, I want to parallel it with uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. So we're going to dip into 1 Thessalonians for the next few weeks. And so if you want to turn there, you can. There's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. And uh, we're going to dive into the first few verses of 1 Thessalonians. Isn't that a cool word? Thessalonians. You know the word that I like even better? So the Thessalonians are the, the people group. They're the people that live there. They're the Thessalonians. But the name of the city is Thessaloniki. Say Thessaloniki. Yeah, so Thessaloniki, next slide, is uh, located in Greece, where that red star is. It's about, as the bird flies, 200 miles north of Athens. And uh, in the first century, there was a small group of people who had come to know and love Jesus and, and to start walking in the ways of Jesus. Uh, the next slide shows a modern-day uh, picture of Thessaloniki, uh, the ancient ruins there in the forefront, and then the city in the Mediterranean. Um, and so Paul had traveled there. Uh, he traveled there after he went to Philippi, where, by the way, he had been beaten. Um, and uh, then he travels to Thessaloniki, and he is sharing with them the good news of Jesus and this way of Jesus, this different way of living. And this is, a, this is a whole new reality to these folks because for ages they've been worshiping the Greek gods. Uh, they're polytheistic. They're, they're, they believe in many gods and they worship the gods and they have to appease the gods. And, and Paul comes and tells them about this one God and his son Jesus that they have no need to appease, that there is nothing they can do to earn this God's favor. That they already have this God's favor. There's nothing they can do to earn this God's favor. And so sometime later, Paul writes this letter to them to encourage them and to talk to them about different things that they're wrestling with. And so we want to look at this ancient letter that was written nearly 2,000 years ago and, and discern, okay, what, what does something that was written nearly 2,000 years ago have to do with us today? What does this have to say to us today? And I want to mainly pick up on some themes in this text that uh, highlight the journey of transformation. Last week we talked about how this journey of transformation is the slow work of God in our life, the slow work of transformation, that transformation isn't something that just at a snap of finger happens and suddenly we're transformed and, and that's it. It's this slow, ongoing work of transformation that God is doing by his spirit in our lives. And so this letter starts, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. So even though Paul seems to be the primary writer of this letter, he, he is writing with and on behalf of two other people, Silas and Timothy. And so this is a group effort, and they're writing to a group. So the, the closest modern equivalent might be a, a, a mass group email that gets sent out. Uh, but but our, our modern-day emails are a far cry from 
handwritten ancient letters of old. And uh, how often do we start emails like this? To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. This is how Paul starts this letter, and it's very similar to how he starts most of his letters. And so this church of the Thessalonians, and then he says, in God the Father. Now, I find this very interesting because Paul is highlighting something here. And it's this, that the group of people, they're called the Thessalonians, but where are they? Where does Paul say they are? He doesn't primarily point to their geographic, physical geographic location. He points to, he says, they are in God, the Father. And so he is highlighting something that the, the pri- their primary identity and locale has to do with their identity in this God. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is reminding them that they now are a part of this movement which is far different than what they've been a part of their whole lives. And, and what they've been taught and what they've learned their whole lives is that uh, what, whatever Caesar is in power, that this Caesar is a god. And that Caesar is Lord. And Paul is saying, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, grace and peace to you. Now, we're not going to go through all of Paul's letters today, but just a little Fun homework assignment for you if you want to do this uh, when you go home. Look at all the different letters that Paul writes in the New Testament and how many of them start with grace and peace and how many of them end with grace and peace. Paul starts his letters with grace and peace and he ends his letters with grace and peace. Uh, These words aren't just random words that Paul chooses to throw out there to start and end his letters with. They are deeply meaningful words for Paul. Often, for me, when I end an email, often I'll end it grace and peace, or when I write a note, I'll often end it grace and peace. Almost every Sunday here, when at the end of the service I give a benediction, I often always end it with grace and peace be with you. Uh, These are powerful words and powerful ideas. What if we were a people who lived with grace and peace? What, What if we started each conversation with grace and peace, and we ended each conversation with grace and peace. What if when we were talking about someone else, it was a conversation filled with grace and peace? 
Paul starts with grace and peace and he ends with grace and peace. And he says to this young group of Christians in Thessaloniki, grace and peace. Now, I want to return to that in a little bit. But he continues, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now these are a loaded couple of verses. And Paul is saying we, we always thank God for you whenever we remember you in prayer. Uh, now, we can think of this uh, idea of always as a bit of hyperbole. Um, but Paul will say elsewhere in a different letter, he'll say, pray without ceasing. Now, how, how do we constantly be praying, always, without ceasing. When we got to get on with our day, we got to go to work, we got to take care of the kids, we got to go to this sports event, we got to do that, we got this meeting, uh, we got to do these emails. How, how do we always pray? And what Paul is getting at is this posture in life, a posture of prayer where we are so in tune with God's Spirit in our lives that what Ever we are engaging in, it is done in a posture of prayer. Now, if we can skip a, a few slides and go to that list that starts with in God and then grace and then peace. There are a number of words here in these first few verses that, as I was studying and looking at, I was like thinking, look at all of these markers that point to this journey of transformation. Just in these first three verses, we have in God, grace, peace, gratitude, prayer, remember. He says, whenever we remember you. This is what, you know, we live in this culture that is so fast-paced, and we move from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, that we rarely stop to remember, to reflect on our day, to reflect on what has come before. This is why we do this each week, why we reenact the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the hope of his return. We, we do this so that we can have this moment in our week where we just stop and remember that Christ's body was broken for us. Christ's blood was shed for us. When we come to this table and partake of the bread and the cup, we remember we stop for a moment and reflect on God's grace in our lives and the peace that it has brought us. And Paul says, faith, love, and hope. You'll say this later in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, 
what remains is faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. He puts them in a little different order here. But there are plenty of other words you could pull out from these first three verses, but just think about these words in these three, first three verses. Uh, what if we even just picked one and said, God, move in me more and more in this way. It would transform us, wouldn't it? It would really transform us if we just had more grace, if we just had more peace, if we just had more faith, more hope, more love, if we reflected more. These are markers of God's movement in our life that bring the transformative power of the Holy Spirit to bear on our lives and what God wants to do in our lives. Um, I want to look back at this idea of grace and peace. Now, uh, many ancient letters start with the word karin, uh, which is greetings. Paul starts with the word charis, which is grace. And so he intentionally does not start with what most ancient letters would start with. He intentionally starts with grace rather than simply greetings. And if you just thought about the word grace for a moment, and I want to ask you to think about this question. Where, where do you see God's grace in your life? That breath you just took. Grace. It's a grace gift. It, that person sitting next to you. Grace. That friend God has put in your life. Grace. Where do you see God's grace in your life? Grace is, is something that is before we ever were. And all we have to do is be open to God's grace in our midst, filling us to overflowing. Grace. Grace. And then peace. Where do you see God's peace in your life? Where is God's peace in your life? Peace, uh, even though Paul's writing in Greek here, he's tapping into the ancient Hebrew idea of shalom. And shalom is not simply what we think of when we think of our English idea of peace. Shalom is this universal flourishing, uh, unity, harmony, connectivity, God's shalom flowing in beautiful, beautiful ways. There, there are these relationships of shalom that God created us for, that we're to have shalom with God, and we're to have shalom with each other. And then we're to have shalom in our own internal disposition, that, that God's shalom, it's possible to live with a posture of shalom, this, this peace that comes 
from God. And then God created us for shalom with the earth, to work it and take care of it, to, be, to properly steward it, to be God's caretakers of this planet. These are the four primary relationships of shalom that God created us for, and they're all interconnected. We can't separate one from the other. When one suffers, the others suffer. Shalom. Peace. Grace and peace. When I think of grace, uh, one of the things that immediately comes to my mind is the, the beautiful story of the prodigal son that we spent some time on a number of months ago. Like what, what an amazing story of grace, right? Where this son goes and squanders all of his father's wealth and he comes back just wanting to be a slave to his father now and his father throws him a party. It's grace. And the older brother who refuses to go in to the party, the father leaves the party and goes out to plead with the older brother to come in. Grace. Grace. This, this father just shows grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. What if we showed that kind of grace? I think it's displayed most powerfully on the cross. If I can have the next slide. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Jesus has just been beaten by these soldiers. He's just been flogged by these soldiers. He's had a crown of thorns placed on his head by these soldiers. They, they have just nailed him to a cross, and now they uh, want his clothes, casting lots to get his clothes. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Uh, who who has nailed you to a cross? Who has caused you pain? Who, who has wounded you? And, and I wonder, by God's grace, are you able to extend grace to them? Now, being able to extend grace to someone who has deeply wounded you and caused you great harm, this does not necessarily mean reconciliation. It doesn't necessarily mean that, now, oh, hey, now everything's great and good and we're pals. It's, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you enter into a relationship, back into a relationship that is potentially toxic and harmful. You need healthy boundaries. But by God's grace, there is the capacity to extend grace and forgiveness to someone who has deeply, deeply wounded you. Grace. Grace and peace. This uh, next slide 
quote from Thomas Merton. He says, as long as we are on earth, the love that unites us will bring us suffering by our very contact with one another. Because this love is the resetting of a body of broken bones. Even saints cannot live with saints on this earth without some anguish, without some pain at the differences that come between them. There are two things which we can do about the pain of disunion with other people. We can love or we can hate. We can love or we can hate. That's the choice. I wonder what it looks like for us as God's people to ask God to fill us with love, to fill us with grace and peace so that we can extend that same love, that same grace, that same peace, that same forgiveness to those in our lives. What would it look like to start each conversation with grace and peace and end each conversation with grace and peace. Now, I think part of the struggle for us in being able to extend grace and peace to others is that so often we have difficulty extending grace and peace to ourselves. We're our own worst critics often, aren't we? We're so hard on ourselves. We feel like we don't measure up. We need to achieve more. We need to do more. We need to be better people. Uh, What if we were able to extend grace and peace to ourselves so that by God's grace we could extend it to others. Because if we cannot extend it to ourselves, it's going to be a very, very difficult thing to extend it to anyone else in our lives. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, in Romans 8, he says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. I think we intellectually assent to this, don't we? We believe this in our heads. But in our hearts and in our life, we, we, we live with this false belief, this false notion that we need to do more. That, that we are under God's judgment and we have to somehow earn his approval, somehow earn salvation. That's what the people in Thessaloniki thought. They had been taught this their whole lives. You have to earn the favor of the gods. You have to earn their approval. You have to please them. Paul is reminding them, and we are being reminded today, grace 
and peace. Grace and peace. You can't earn it. You, you, you can't somehow uh, appease God. You already have God's favor. The only reason we choose to live lives of grace and peace, the only reason we choose to do quote-unquote good works is because we were created in Christ Jesus to do them. They're just a natural overflow of who we already are. We don't do them to earn God's favor. We do them because it's who we are. As God's children, we are children of grace and peace. You are enough. You are enough. Because in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. You already have God's favor. There's nothing more you can do to earn it. You already have it. Grace and peace. So I wonder this morning for you, what it looks like to allow God's spirit to transform you just a little bit more this morning into the image of Christ. To transform you just a little bit more into allowing that intellectual belief to become reality deep within your being and to extend to yourself grace and peace. And then I wonder what it looks like for you to allow the Spirit of God to continue to work in you, to continue to work that grace and peace in you, and to allow it to flow back out to the others in your life. Perhaps it would be helpful to just pick one area in your life. What is one area in your life that you're really hard on yourself about? Just pick that one area. Maybe write it down. And then across it, write grace and peace. And then perhaps it would be helpful to just pick one person in your life who God is compelling you to show grace and peace to. Maybe write their name down. And then through their name, write grace and peace. This is the invitation of transformation. You're not going to get all the way there today. I'm not going to get all the way there today. But I believe deep in my soul that God's Spirit is inviting us to one more step in the journey of transformation. And this morning, I invite you to just think about grace and peace. Grace and peace to yourself, and grace and peace to someone else in your life. Grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. God, this morning...
as in a few moments we come forward and remember the grace and peace that you extended to us because of your work on the cross. How your body was broken and your blood poured out. And how you endured it all with grace and peace. God, form in us more and more the heart of Jesus, the heart of grace and peace. God, convince us once again this morning that we are enough in you. That you have already extended grace and peace to us. God, by your spirit, allow us to extend grace and peace to ourselves. And may that grace and peace flow out of us to others. God, as we dip this bread and this cup this morning, remind us anew of your grace and peace. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This morning as you go, may you know the grace and peace of Jesus. May you extend grace and peace to yourself. May you extend grace and peace to those in your life. May you extend grace and peace to those who have hurt you. Grace and peace be with you.